Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Today we're going to look at another paragraph in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, looking at verses 19 through 34, which is the end of Matthew chapter 6. Today's question is this. Which master are you serving? Which master are you serving? Now notice how I've worded the question. Because the question is assuming and is believing, I believe, that every one of us are serving a master. We do serve something. It's not an option. You will serve a master. The question is, is it the right master? So that's why I've worded the question this way. Which master are you serving? You will serve a master. And that master can change, by the way. It can change from second to second, moment to moment, week by week, day by day, sometimes. It's not always consistent. Today's Bible passage that we're going to look at here helps us to answer this this big question of which master are you serving? And I've, I've decided today to, to give you two questions that will help you to answer this very important question of which master are you serving? My first question that will help us to answer this big question of which master are you serving is this. Are you storing up spiritual treasure in heaven? Are you storing up spiritual treasure in heaven? Now look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, because Jesus starts off with a negative command here. He's going to also give us the positive one. But he starts off with a negative command in verse 19. Look at Matthew 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Why does Jesus say that? Because he says it's essentially foolish. It's foolish because there's problems with laying up treasure on earth. He names some of them here. Look at verse 19. He says, because it's where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, by the way, let me just lay aside a misconception that some people have of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is not against treasure and wealth. He's not against it. He's just concerned about where you're storing it. Because Jesus doesn't leave it at that with that negative command. He gives us a positive command in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, but here's where I do want you to lay up treasure. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Why why heaven as opposed to laying up treasure on earth? Because in heaven, look what he says, neither moth nor rust destroys, thieves do not break in and steal. So the first question I have for you that will help you to answer which master are you serving is, is this. Are you storing up spiritual treasure in heaven? The answer to that question will, will help you to answer Honestly, am I serving God? Am I, is God really my master? Yeah, well, the first question that came to my mind as I was looking at those couple verses was, well, okay, I'm supposed to lay up spiritual treasure in heaven. What is spiritual treasure? 
Jesus doesn't tell you there, does he? He just says, don't do that, do this. This is where your treasure should be. He didn't tell you what spiritual treasure is. So look at this comment here from this commentator. Quote, spiritual treasure is everything that believers can take with them beyond the grave. For example, he gives some examples here. He says, holiness of character, obedience to all of God's commands, souls won for Christ, and disciples nurtured in the faith. In this context, storing up treasures focuses particularly on the compassionate use of material resources to meet others' physical and spiritual needs, end quote. And you understand now what we're talking about here by storing up spiritual treasures. Anything that you can take with you beyond the grave. That's what Jesus is talking about. Let me give you a few examples in the Bible of people who attempted to store up treasure on earth. And you can judge for yourself whether that was successful or not. I've got a picture here of Achan. And Achan was, there's, there's jokes about this, he was aching after he, he stole property from Jericho, which God said was his. Anyway, he caused, as a result of taking the, the Babylonian garments and, and his gold and silver, uh, it ended up causing the defeat of Israel's armies at the next battle of Ai. A small, little insignificant city, but any, anyway, as a result of his stealing from God, the armies of Israel suffered defeat. Well, he himself also suffered death eventually when he was caught. His sin did find him out, and along with his family. Why? It's because he coveted items that God told him not to take from the city of Jerusalem. God says, the first city belongs to me, not you. It's mine. Hands off. Achan did not obey. So not only did he suffer the consequences, his family suffered the consequences of his sin, and even the armies of Israel suffered the consequences for his sin. You don't sin in a vacuum. Number two is Solomon. Solomon allowed the love of money and women to ruin his spiritual life. Apparently he came to his senses at the end of his life and uh, wrote some good scripture for us. It's, it's very helpful, very revealing. In the end, Solomon recognized, you know, it's all vanity. Anything under the sun without God is vanity. It's emptiness. It's meaningless. I mean, here's a guy who had, you know, hundreds, hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. He had lots of money, but it was worthless. It was meaningless because it was, it was all without God. These were idols in his life. Another picture here for you of Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about money. They pretended they had given full price of a piece of land to the church while they actually were holding back part of the price. So there's nothing nothing wrong with that, but the problem was they lied. That's the problem. And as a result, God killed them on the spot. So those are just a couple examples we see in the Bible. People attempting to store up treasure on earth. It's foolish. Well, fortunately, there's examples in the Bible of, of even wealthy people. God's not opposed to wealth, okay? Some people 
think that's the case. Jesus is not opposed to wealth. He just said, be careful where you're storing it. That's the issue. Where are you storing your treasure? But these were people who were wealthy. God blessed them. Uh, but they stored up treasure in heaven. Abraham was a very wealthy man. The Bible even calls him the friend of God. Here's a guy who's wealthy, and God calls him his friend. One sign of God's blessing can be material wealth. Now, beware, beware, because there is a false gospel out there, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It says become a Christian, and then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, famous, all these sort of things. Not necessarily the case. But in Abraham's case, uh, God did certainly bless him and gave him much material wealth. But Abraham wasn't consumed with that wealth. He wasn't trying to store up treasure on here on earth. Job was another very rich man. The Bible says that God blessed him as well. When you read uh, to the end of the book of Job, you find out it specifically mentions 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and God gave him 20 children. Because he took the first 10 to heaven and gave him 10 more. So he had a total of 20 children. But in Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Again, he wasn't consumed with storing up his treasure here on earth. Yes, he had much treasure, but that wasn't his consuming passion. God was. David was also a very another, another rich man, eventually became king of Israel. We don't need to say a whole lot about him. You know what kings are like, don't you? But the Bible says, here's what God said about David, that he was a man after his own heart. Those are just a few examples we see in the Bible of people who are wealthy, but nevertheless stored up treasure in heaven. Now our, our passage here that Jesus is giving us gives us several reasons why we should store up spiritual treasure in heaven. Several reasons why we should store up spiritual treasure in heaven. Number one is material things do not last. Material things do not last. Now there's a, a picture I found that uh, could have been a very lovely car, but of course it's rusting to death. Which just shows us what happens to material things. They do not Last, in fact, Jesus says there in verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because these, these things are not going to last. Moths destroy clothing. Washing machines mysteriously eat our socks. You ever wondered where they go anyway? I mean, how do they do that? That's what happens. They mysteriously eat our socks and rust ruins our cars. What the moths and the rust don't ruin, thieves can steal it. If they don't steal it, the government's going to take it. You get way more taxes than you deserve. And even if we're able to escape the moths and the rust and Inland Revenue Department for some reason, you know what the Bible says? That heaven and earth will pass away. So every time I look at something and covet it, my wife reminds me it's all going to burn. Good reminder. It's all going to burn. 
Now here's the point that Jesus is making. Everything material will be gone one day. Everything. So just be careful where your treasure is. So Jesus says to store up treasure in heaven because material things do not last. Number two, second reason why you must store up treasure in heaven is because focusing on money and possessions is actually going to bind us to this earth. It's going to bind us to this earth. Look at verse 21. Jesus says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where you put your money and possessions, you know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to follow it. So if you own a business, beware. Don't let your heart follow the business or your job or your hobby or whatever. Okay? You be careful where your money and possessions go because the tendency is for our heart to follow that and go with it. We're creatures of the earth, right? Which is why possessions are not bad in and of themselves, okay? Uh, <clears throat> there, there were people, when we, you know, we're, we're get, starting to get into this in church history. These people who believe in an asceticism. The, the idea of, you know, everything material is kind of bad, so you need, you need to be poor and impoverished and don't eat, you know, hardly anything. Sleep in horrible conditions and, you know, just, just pray and... And read the Bible and do stuff like that. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Jesus didn't say to do that. Possessions are not bad in and of themselves. They're morally neutral. But we're also, you have to realize, we're also made for heaven. This earth is in our home. We're just passing through it. Our highest and most noble thoughts concern not what we have in common with our cat and our dog. No. But what we are made in God's image, and, and, we're, and we're made for fellowship with God, to, to glorify Him. That should be our highest and most noble thoughts. So if we're concentrating on wealth and possessions alone, we strangle what's actually best for us. We, we choke it off. We become only empty shells of what God actually created us to be. God didn't create us to just focus on this earth. So remember, your heart always goes where you put God's money. It's all His. Everything you own is His. So your heart will follow where you put God's money and His possessions and resources. So number two, focusing on money and possessions is going to bind you to this earth, and you don't want to be bound to this earth. It's not going to last. It's temporary. Number three, concentrating on things clouds our vision. Clouds our vision. You don't want cloudy vision. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, or not clear, distorted, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now I'll confess to you, those are not the clearest verses in the Bible. (laughs) And as I was reading about seven or eight different commentaries on this, I found that I'm not alone on this. (laughs) They had a hard time interpreting these, frankly. 
But this, this particular commentator caught my attention in, in trying to help me to understand what in the world are these verses actually talking about here. So here's what this one commentator said. Quote, it's on the screen here for you. The idea behind this passage is one of childlike simplicity. The eye is regarded as the window by which the light gets into the whole body. The color and state of a window decide what light get into a room. If the window is clear, clean, and undistorted, the light will come flooding into the room and will illuminate every corner of it. If the glass of the window is colored or frosted, distorted, dirty, or obscure, the light will be hindered and the room will not be lit up. So then, says Jesus, the light which gets into any man's heart and soul and being depends on the spiritual state of the eye through which it has to pass. For the eye is the window of the whole body. End quote. So you've probably heard that phrase, you know, your eyes are kind of the window to your soul. Well, that's not original to any of us. God kind of is saying that here, isn't he? So concentrating on, th- the problem here is, is, is concentrating on things is going to cloud our vision. We're not going to see clearly as God wants us to see. Now, what's the point here? Here's the point. If you're absorbed with money and possessions and material things, you're, you're going to miss everything else in life that really matters. Which is why so many wealthy people, sadly, destroy their families. They get divorced. They, they lose their children. Their children hate them. And uh, <clears throat> you read about wealthy people, even you know, people in their own company, they, if they created a company or whatever, people they work with don't even like them. Right? They, they lose all the important really important things that really matter in life. So concentrating on things clouds our vision. Number four, last reason that Jesus gives here to store up spiritual treasure in heaven is no one can serve God and money at the same time. It's just not possible, Jesus says. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's, it, it's not possible, he's saying. You can't do it. It's not like an employer. You know, it is possible to have two jobs at the same time, but you can't have two masters at the same time. You only have one. So which master are you serving? Again, let me quote, uh, in this case, I'm actually quoting a pastor. Look what this pastor said about this verse. Quote, it's on the screen here. You cannot serve both God and money, says Jesus. We like to think we can. We're great compromisers. Or we think we're serving God by making money. True, we can use our money to serve God. Some do. But if our hearts are set on our possessions... We are not actually serving God whatever we may suppose we are doing. End quote. But you're going to serve, you will, you will serve a master. Which master are you serving? Okay, essentially it comes down to, to the two choices on the shelf, right? There's only two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Right? So the reason we love money is because of what it does for us, Right? 
So in essence, we use the money for ourselves. So in essence, what we're doing is we're actually worshiping ourselves. Because we love what the money does for me. Let me give you some application here. Number one, avoid extremes. Avoid extremes. There's always pendulum swings whenever you look at virtually everything. Inevitably, there's going to be extremes, or these extreme pendulum swings. One of those is aestheticism, which is essentially denying all material concern. Okay? I don't think that's the appropriate way to handle this. Okay? Number two is making provision for future physical needs. You know, some would say, well, hey, you know, you're, you're showing a lack of faith by making plans for the future. Jesus said to make plans. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, for example, he talked about the king going into battle. He said it's foolish for a king to go into battle and not consider, you know, you know how many soldiers do I have? Do, do all my soldiers have armor and, and swords and spears and bows and arrows? You know, do these guys have weapons to fight? You know, how, how big is my enemy anyway? You know, it's kind of foolish for a king not to plan. Jesus said it's, it's foolish for a guy to go and, and build a tower and, and not know if he has enough money and supplies to actually finish the tower. The <laughs> Bible recommends that we actually plan. Plan ahead. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a lack of faith. A third extreme is engaging in business you know, some would say, you know, don't engage in business to make a profit. You know, that's, that's showing a lack of faith as well. No. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus actually commended the servants who, who made money off the investments that were given to them. They were commended. The guy who did nothing and buried his talents in the ground was condemned by Jesus. Number four. All wealthy people are worshiping the false god of money. That's an extreme. God's not opposed to wealth. He's the one who gives it. So to say that all wealthy people are bowing down to the false god of money is, is, is just wrong. It's not the case. Number two. Uh, this, this point I want to make here actually comes from an excellent little book uh, I'm not sure if it's in the church library, but I do have it at home if you wish to read it. And I, I do recommend all of you read this book called The Treasure Principle. Just a short little book. You, can, you could easily read it in about two hours, probably. Uh, anyway, it was written by Randy Alcorn, and, he, and his Treasure Principle there is very helpful as, as I read the book. I, uh, so I'll put it on the screen here for you. Here's what he said. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So when you die, you know that your, your money and your possessions aren't going to go with you. But Jesus is saying you can send it on ahead. You, you can't take it with you. You can't. You'll never find a hearse pulling a trailer. And you know why? Because you can't take it with you. The pharaohs tried that. Look what happened to the pharaohs' riches. Most of them, got, most of them had tomb robbers come in, right, and take all their gold and everything else away except for King Tut. He still had quite a bit there. But even, even he didn't get to take it with him, did he? That's what happens. It's, it's a waste. But if you're laying up treasure in heaven, then it's, it's there waiting for you when you get there. That's the treasure principle. 
And number three, manage God's wealth wisely. You're the manager. It's all God's wealth, and God made you the manager of it, so manage it wisely. Now, the Bible gives three primary purposes for wealth, okay? Three primary purposes for wealth. Number one, God wants us to give appropriate care for our own families and to prevent them from becoming a burden to others. Okay, that's a biblical principle. For example, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa. So these delinquent, absent fathers, God says, are worse than unbelievers. And mothers who just run away from their children and their families are worse than an unbeliever. And people who just sit around in their house not working, God says, are worse than an unbeliever. God says it's vitally important that we provide for our relatives, especially for our immediate families. Number two, the second primary purpose for wealth is this, to help those who are in need, especially our church family. So God says, look at Galatians 6 verse 10 here. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, that's, that's referring to your Christian brothers and sisters. Especially the ones who you're supposed to be committed to in this local assembly. God expects you to provide for each other's needs. Number three, the third primary purpose for wealth is to encourage and support God's work in spreading the gospel. Those are the three primary purposes in the Bible. For example, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we need to avoid extremes. We need to realize we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. And we need to manage God's wealth wisely. And number four, we need to avoid the idol of materialism. Avoid the idol of materialism. Bumper stickers often express the idolatry of the modern world. For example, you may have seen some of these. Here's one of the ones that disturbs me. When I see it, it says, He who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen that one? Is that true? No, of course not. He who dies with the most toys does not win. Another one says, You can't take it with you. Well, at least they got the first part of the treasure principle right. <laughs> but but that, that philosophy is wrong as well. Sadly, the philosophy behind those sayings is totally unbiblical. They're saying that this life and our afterlife it has no real meaning. So, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's that kind of a philosophy. So you've got to make it your ambition to play hard, work hard, you know, enjoy your hobbies, and find your worth in the pleasure of this world. Do you see how that philosophy is ungodly? I hope you do. 
totally unbiblical because the Bible says, for example, here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the stuff of this world's transient. It's, it's temporary. It's not permanent. Whereas God and His will it abides forever. Do you see that contrast there? So God says, don't, don't be foolish and love the world or the things in the world. They don't last And they don't give hope. Materialism is just one of those rampant cancers that is really now a worldwide temptation, which is, as a result of that, it's producing a lot of worry. Even rich people are worried. Many people wonder, well, hey, how am I going to be able to maintain my lifestyle? You know, if the world goes into recession, you know, hey... I, I own five different mansions around the world, or I've got all these stocks in the stock market or whatever. You know, how am I going to maintain my lifestyle? Many of them can't. Sadly, many Christians are worried, you know, hey, if, if I actually do what Jesus says here, if I actually bother to store up treasure in heaven, then, then how are my needs going to be met? So if you've ever wondered that question, Jesus addresses that in the very next passage here. Jesus addresses that very issue in the next paragraph, because there were many Christians that were probably thinking, okay, Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth, instead store up spiritual treasure in heaven, okay? But if I do that, then, you know, I've got all these needs, you know, how are they going to be met? You know, we start worrying, we start fretting, we think of all the what-ifs, and how is that going to get done, well, Jesus answers that question here. Well, that brings, So that brings us to the second question that helps us to answer the first one. Which master are you serving? Okay, well, one of the, the measuring sticks, if you will, that'll help you to answer that is, are you storing up spiritual treasure in heaven? The second question is this, are you trusting God? Are you trusting God? Or are you trusting something else? Jesus essentially says here, don't worry. Don't worry about your needs. Why shouldn't we worry? Well, Jesus gives three reasons. And by the way, all three reasons are actually marked with a therefore. There's there's actually three therefores in this passage. And as I've said before, whenever you see a therefore, what question are you supposed to ask? What is it there for? Well, the preceding verse or verses answers that question. What is it there for? And the therefore is followed by three commands, all saying, don't worry. Don't worry. So what I want you to do is go to your Bible, circle or underline the word, therefore, in verse 25, there's a therefore in verse 31, and there's a therefore in verse 34. Three times Jesus commands us, Don't worry. Do you you get the point? How many times does Jesus have to say something until we get the point, really? (laughs) I mean, 
in baseball, you know, if you have three strikes, you're out. Okay? We got, we got three strikes here. Three times Jesus commands us, don't worry. Each case, the therefore, is actually pointing back to what came immediately before that verse. In other words, let me put it this way to you, okay? This is about as clear as I can be. <clears throat> because of the truth you see in verse 24, we should not worry. Because of the truth in verses 26 to 30, we should not worry. And because of the truth in verses 32 and 33, we shouldn't worry. Is that clear? All right. So that's the big picture. All right. Let's look at the three reasons not to worry here. Number one, the first reason you should not worry is because you cannot serve God and worry too. You can't do it. Look at verse 25. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious or worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus first, therefore, is found there in verse 25, picking up on the contrast here, Going back to verse 20, the contrast in verse, sorry, verse 24 is what? The contrast between serving the master called God and the master called money. So it's that contrast there that Jesus is developing in verse 24. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. So to serve God, you must trust God. And guess what? Are you trusting God if you're worried? Are you? Are you really trusting God if you're worried? No, of course not. You're not, you're not trusting God if you're, if you're worried or anxious. So that means you, have a, you, you're, you actually have a different master. You're, you're trusting in something else. You're serving something else other than God if you're worried. The Bible calls it idolatry. So you can't serve God and worry, too. Number two, second reason not to worry, you are overlooking God's care of his creation. That's what this passage is talking about here, how God is meeting the needs of his creation. There's, there's several illustrations here. But look at the therefore in verse 31. Look at the therefore. There's an, the second therefore is in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Okay, that's, that's kind of summarizing and looking back to the previous verses. So let's go to verse 26. We see the first illustration that Jesus gives of how God is meeting the needs of his creation. Look at verse 26. And in this case, the illustration is birds. Jesus says in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What's the answer to that question? Are you? And the, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Of course you're more valuable than the birds. So God is looking after the birds. You don't see them worrying and fretting, do you? No. <clears throat> they don't get the dole. There's no bird winds for them to fly to and say, yeah, hey, I want my money today. Yeah, there's no such thing. They don't get that. God looks after the birds. 
And the obvious answer is, since God looks after His creation and He cares for them, then He will care for you. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? <laughs> is, is worrying about your life going to actually add any time onto your life? Will it? Is that actually going to accomplish anything? No. In fact, if anything, what, what happens? There's, there's things that happen within our body physically when we worry that will actually shorten your lifespan, right? Things like ulcers and other problems that can happen as a result of worry. So instead of you having a longer lifespan, worry is actually going to shorten your life, if anything. Okay, look at verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So based upon verses 26 to 30, the first word in verse 34, or 31 is, therefore. Therefore. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? So, if you worry, you're overlooking God's care of his creation. You're not actually looking around you, are you? Okay, God's looking after the birds, God's looking after the flowers, God's looking after the grass, and he's looking after everything else in his creation. He's in charge. He hasn't abdicated his throne. He's still sovereign, reigning supreme over all of his creation. <laughs> and he's accomplishing his purposes, so don't worry. Can't serve God and worry too. Number two, you're overlooking God's care of his creation. The third reason not to worry is that <clears throat> it is only by putting God first that we can be sure of anything. You can't be sure of anything without God in your life. Look at verse 34. You see the next therefore, the third therefore. Verse 34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. <clears throat> Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So that's the third therefore. Again, backing up to the previous verses. Look at verse 32. So we've got to find out what that therefore is there for. Well, verse 32 says, For the Gentiles... Seek after these things, the, the what things, the things you drink and what you wear, okay? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So based on that truth, therefore, do not be anxious, do not worry. Just think about this here. <clears throat> if we are created to know God, and we are, and if we are created to serve God, and we are, then guess what? The only successful course in life is to trust God and not worry. It's foolish to worry. 
If God has created us and has redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ, do you think that he's going to fail to care for you? Do you? If God's looking after the lesser parts of his creation, why do we fail to believe that God is going to care for us? You're of more value than a bird or grass. And the answer is, of of course not. God's not going to fail to care for you. He's going to take care of you. He promised he would. Therefore, what do we need to do? We need to make it our goal to seek God's interest first. That's what verse 33 says. Your goal is to seek God's interest first. His kingdom and his righteousness. And then all those things, all the other things of life, will be added to you. Make it your goal to see God's interest first. See him meet all your physical needs. He will. He's promised he would. Besides, I mean, verse 34 says, you can't do anything about the future anyway. (laughs) Oh, we try, don't we? We foolishly try to somehow manipulate the future, though. We do it all the time, don't we? But you can't. Can't do anything about the future. The future's in God's hands, and it's going to be managed perfectly by God, whether or not you're worrying about it or not. Worry's not going to help. It's just going to hinder. So, you say, okay, I mean, I, I can see that. There's several reasons here Jesus gives me not to worry. But I do. <laughs> we do. We all worry at some point in our life. We got that that sinful problem in our lives. It's one of those respectable sins, Jerry Bridges says, that we all do. From time to time, we worry. So what do we do about it? How can I have victory over worry? Well, there's three words here <clears throat> that, uh, that Warren, we- Warren Wiersbe, I, I think, is the originator of this. But anyway, he, there are three F's here that, that are in our passage here. Three F's that, uh, that really help us to ha- have victory over worry. And the first one is faith. The first F is faith. Verse 30 says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So what's the problem there? The problem is our lack of faith. We have a lack of faith. So the reason we worry is our lack of faith. It's, as Jim Berg said, right? What, what, why do we have noisy souls? The main problem of a noisy soul is our unbelief. We're meditating on the wrong content. We're all good at meditating. The question is, what is, what is the content of your meditation? Are you thinking about how you're going to pay that bill? Are you thinking about an upcoming surgery or you know, your health or your children or your grandchildren or, you know, how am I going to pay my debt off? You know, am I going to get a job? Am I going to lose my job? You know, the list goes on and on. If you're meditating on that stuff, you're going to have a very noisy soul. You will be anxious and worried. God says we must believe and trust in him. That should be the content of our meditation. So I ask you, are you trusting God to meet your needs? Are you? Are you trusting God to meet your needs? And, and you should, by the way, you should be trusting God to meet your needs because there is nothing more secure and trustworthy than God is. 
Can you think of anything more trustworthy and secure than God? I mean, are you going to trust your bank more than God? Are you going to trust yourself more than God? Are you going to trust your family more than God? Are you going to trust your boss and your job more than God or the stock market or the economy? What is there that's more secure and trustworthy than God? I, I can't think of a single thing. There is nothing. Therefore, we should trust God to meet our needs. He's promised he will, and he doesn't lie. So, how can I have victory over worry? Well, number one is believe. Have faith in this God who is secure and trustworthy. Number two is, well, that that goes to the object of our faith. Number two is the object of our faith, which is the Father. The Father. Do you know that God cares for his children? Do you actually believe what you believe? The Bible says if, if you have been saved by faith alone, in, in, in Christ alone, by grace alone, then you are a child of God. You're no longer a child of the devil. You're a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. You weren't born into the family. You have to be adopted into his family. You have to be born again, converted and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the problem is we're dead in our trespasses and sins. God has to make us alive, work, work his grace of faith in us. So we can be converted, repent of our sin. Well, that, that brings me to another question here is, are you a child of God? Are you? If you're not a child of God, you have, you have great, good reasons to be worried. Okay? If somebody's not a child of God, well, that means then you're a child of the devil and you're on your way to hell for all eternity. Those are good reasons to be worried. Where's your eternal home? Where is your eternal home? My friend, if you've never put your faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, in faith alone, then you're not saved. Heaven is not your home. Hell it will be your home for all eternity, and you'll deserve it. You'll get exactly what you deserve. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve Christ. You don't want what you deserve. None of us want what we deserve. Because if we got what we deserve, it'd be eternal condemnation. So are you a child of God? You have to be adopted into his family. God can accept you as his son, but that's only through the work of Christ. It's not based on your good works. God's not impressed with our works. In fact, he calls them dirty rags. He's not impressed with our works. So, there, so this belief, well, you know, hey, my good works will outweigh my bad works is a false belief. So are you a child of God? If you put your faith in Christ alone, then you're believing in the finished work of Christ, then you are a child of God. And we shouldn't worry, because God promised to care for his children. And number three is the word first. We see in verse 33, the, the solution to worry is <clears throat> don't focus on your little world. We get so inwardly focused on our little worlds, but instead, verse 33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put God first, and then God says, then I'm going to look after you, okay? Okay? 
But if you put yourself first, God's going to take his hands off and say, okay, you think you can do it all by yourself, buddy? Go for it. Right? <laughs> you just go for it. You try to do it on your own, and when you fall flat on your face, come, to, come running to Father. God says put him first. God must be first in our lives. The question is, are you putting God first in your life, though? God's not satisfied with half-hearted commitments. Christ makes that very clear as we go on in the book of Matthew. I mean, he makes it very, very clear. He says to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. He comes, he says, he says your love for Jesus should be so great that your love for your family appears like you hate them. That's what Jesus says. Doesn't mean to hate your family. That's not what Jesus said. But your love for him is to be greater. He's first. So God's not satisfied with a half-hearted commitment. He doesn't want our tithe of our lives. God wants our whole life. God demands our all. He deserves our all. Now, here's the good news, friends. Okay, you ready? Here's the good news. When you put all three of those together, they're a wonderful package. It's a package deal. If we have faith in the Father, if we put him first, God says he's going to meet our needs. He will. Because he says there in verse 33, all these things will be added to you. What, what are those things? The things you need. It's the things you need. You know, the food, your shelter, your clothing, your, your water, those type of things. God says, I'm going to look after them. I will meet your needs. However... Here's the package deal. We must have faith in the Father, and we must put Him first. Then He'll meet our needs. So I ask you, which master are you serving? Jesus makes it clear here which master we are serving, and He makes it clear by really answering these two questions here. Which which master are you serving? Well, the answer to that is, is, hey, we need to show that, that... You are serving God by storing up spiritual treasure in heaven. Are you showing you're storing up spiritual treasure in heaven? The answer to that will answer which master you're serving. Are you showing that you're serving God by trusting him for your physical needs? Are you? Trusting God for all your physical needs? The answer to that question will answer which master you're serving. Because if you're, if you're, if you're worried then you're bowing down to yourself. You're serving a false god, a false master. So by God's grace, may we only serve the living God.